So what she's doing, it's really sort of amazing. Sorry. <laughs> it's sort of amazing because um, it's taking the whole Christian, um, I don't want to call it a system, the whole way of life of Christianity and inverting it without even knowing it. So implicitly what it's saying is, and we saw this in, in other works already, um, anybody who denies Christ is not in a neutral position. There's no neutral position. Christ is either God, and he made it clear when he came here that he is, and it's, remember we've talked about that in the apologetics. It's so evident. You either believe him or you don't. There's no middle ground. Being skeptical, or, as a matter of fact, the, the misfit um, knows it, but he can't believe it, won't allow himself to believe it. Um, so when you deny Christ, even if you don't know it, you're implicitly betraying him. And that's the shock of the dream. And she, the dream brings her to reality, and I thought Joyce's point was well taken, that coming into the past tense means you're coming into real time. You're, remember, the present tense doesn't go anywhere, it's just you're stuck, she's trapped. To come into the past tense leaves us wondering what will happen. Do we know? We don't, but... Okay, any comments or thoughts about firing Judas? Sorry? If anybody wants to take a break, do it now because we're gonna we're gonna get into. The flood looks terrible because when I turn it, it kind of it tastes really good. It's super moist. It's super good. Doc, can you get a couple? The brownies. Yeah, I'm not going to, if there's something else there that's, but. What about this? Take it. You can open cake. Well, obviously now, because you're all ready. <laughs> Connie, save me a piece, please. There's no real You did good. You did good. Can we trust his cooking, the caking he's supposed to make next year? No. 
We have to meet back here in a year. Yes. From movie and <laughs> One and a half for sure. Okay, Did you get the story read? Mm -hmm. Did you finish it? Really? I'm a really fast. You must be a god. I could not do that. Wow. I know it makes, it makes my family so upset. Yeah, I would. It's like I didn't say you could eat the book. I said read it. <laughs> wow. I can't help it. I'm a real. I'm a very very slow reader. Always have been. Suzanne just goes through books and. I mean, I can't. I just can't do that. Wow. So good. It's hard to choose out of all the stories. It's so hard to choose which ones you want to do. Because some of my favorites are good country people. I love the artificial nigger. I love the river. The river, I was going to say, you're going to, and river and Parker's back or something, but. Do you want another like, piece of bread? Sorry. Do you want another piece of bread? Oh, if there's any, but I'm, I, I'll, I shouldn't be eating a duck. Do you want me to just put butter in that? That would be good. <laughs> got butter in it. Why don't you go ahead and get another piece? Doc, when you come back, can you bring a napkin or a couple of napkins? Glad you're seeing the humor. Lots of people read her and just can't laugh. It's hard to laugh in her stories. <laughs> Let's start. Let's start. Somebody tear Connie away from that. Doc, would you get our friend, Suzanne, would you get our friend, please?
Let's start. So we're going from Flowering Judas in which um, a young, beautiful, attractive, um, purposeful woman. Um, she's attractive to most young men in Bragioni. Very committed or, or started out very committed to this ideal. She's a social activist. She wants to change the world. She wants to make it better. On the surface, it seems that there's everything good. And in the stories that we've been reading, if you keep in mind the Marian principle in the church, which I've been trying to keep alive here, that Mary said yes to God. And she didn't say, wait a minute, let me figure out the conditions in which I'll go ahead with this. You know, and she had no idea that what she was in for, letting herself in for. What an amazing trust of faith, yeah? Um, in some ways it goes past Abraham. Abraham had to give up everything as a man. Um, Mary was raised, remember, under the law. Christianity doesn't exist in. I hope everybody remembers that. There was no Christian way of life for her. I want everybody to hold on to that. Thanks, Doug. Um, she was raised under the law. She took obedience seriously. Can you imagine married? So there's no Christianity yet. Everybody hold on to that just deeply somewhere. There's no Christianity yet. It's still to come. Mary said yes. Can you imagine a day going by without that mother teaching her son the law and God and wanting him to become obedient? Who lives like that? Unless you're a very, very Orthodox Jew today. Um, the Protestants don't. They don't take the commandment. I mean, they've been saved. You know, a Catholic, we're we are supposed to take the commandment seriously. Christ even said that to his disciples. Follow the commandments. So we're going from a story about a young woman who's very attractive, young, idealistic, um, seems to be giving herself to this cause, but inwardly, spiritually, inside her heart, she's disillusioned, she is self-protective, she's stuffing her emotions. And I'm using that word deliberately, she just stuffs them. She won't let herself feel anything. And at the end has this um, shocking nightmare dream in which uh, Eugenio comes to her and says, murder, cannibal. So Porter has presented this story in which we're um, sh um, shown a woman going through the motions of something and then having a moment of self-realization, self-knowledge, self-discovery. She sees something about herself. We're going from Porter to O'Connor, and O'Connor in lots of ways is dealing with the same thing. Um, it's, I, what I want to do for a moment is just go through some of the general concerns that, we, that run through Connor's book. Now remember, one of the points that I tried stressing when we were doing Jane Austen is Jane Austen is not a feminist. I just, I do not believe that at all in the deepest part of my being. Feminine to her core, absolutely feminine. Feminist, not at all. She's not looking at women through the lens of political structures, whatever a political revolution could realize. She's looking at the world through the emotional life of a woman who's gifted with words. That's Jane Austen. 
So she's able to take the interior, the um, extremely sensitive, emotional life of a woman and give words to it. Often thought of as a, as a male thing, a cognitive thing, to, give, to conceptualize things. It's far more manly than um, except for poets, and you should all know that by now. I mean, we've been reading poets, most of them are men, and I, I think I've made this point before, I'm not sure that it meant maybe as much as it should. I can't think of a poet, a great poet, who doesn't have a woman somewhere inside of him. He, he, couldn't, he couldn't be a sense, Homer's describing scene after scene after scene of one man killing another man. But his sensitivity to those things, lots of men are just going to look at that and go on, killing. You've got a poet who records it all. I would say that every great poet, Homer, Dante, you, go where you want, every great poet, Shakespeare, has a woman inside him, or he could not be as sensitive as he is to the things in front of him. So we're going from Jane Austen to Welty to Porter to O'Connor. What we're going to see O'Connor is that um, like these other women who are extraordinarily brave, extraordinarily brave, these women are amazing creatures for what they've given us to help us seed this. Um, um, we're going to mostly women figures again, Mrs. May, Mrs. Turpin, and um, what am I? The grandmother. The grandmother, yeah, a good man is hard to find. And we're once again seeing the world largely through women, um, or in terms of women. Um, and once again, um, the, the principal way in which O'Connor does that is the same way Porter does it. If you were reading closely, you will have noticed in um, Revelation that there are several allusions to shadows. Did that bring to mind anything in you guys? The repeated use of Shah? Huh? I wasn't thinking of Moby Dick. Shadows on the wall. Plato's cave. Plato's cave. <laughs> What's the fundamental point of Plato's cave? Some. Mike. Huh? Vision. We're disconnected from reality. Yeah. I mean, there's a deeper vision, clearly. That, remember, he's calling the poets to get outside of the cave, because so long as you're in the cave... Remember, the, the shadows on the wall, the shadows on the wall, people take his appearance. The shadows are cast by that fire behind him, um, casting the shadows from books. Remember, there are all these men carrying these books, so everybody in the cave is living according to the ideas that people look... that people project on the world. Jane Austen? Shakespeare, Marx, particularly, I mean, the modern ideologue is stuck in the cave. I would say the reason Shakespeare and Dante and Homer are not stuck in that cave is because all of them have a transcendent view. They stand outside the cave, bringing a, a, a divine perspective in on what goes on in our human life. Is that clear? I don't want to go through that too fast. Remember, we talked about Plato a lot when we first started. Everybody's in the cave, there's a fire behind the, the wall and all these prisoners are trapped. They have chains on their heads. They're trapped. And the light from that fire casts shadows on the wall and everybody chained there takes those shadows as reality. 
So most people in the world take appearances. We're all sitting here, we're very respectable. We're showing manners while we're eating, some of us. <laughs> one of us, one of us isn't. Um, we're taken by those shadows and we take them as the reality, right? Laura's outer appearances is what's real until we get to the end and realize that's not real at all. So over and over again we see what these poets are showing us um, are shadows, people trapped by shadows. What, why is that important for um, Plato? Because he says one person happens to question those shadows and he breaks free. He begins to question what's going on and as he does he begins to claim, climb out of the cave. Who is that person? Socrates. Because remember, Socrates went around questioning. He didn't... Every person we read, Miss, the, the grandmother, particularly Turpin and May, they think they know everything. They're settled, they're smart, they're respectable, everybody thinks well of them. What O'Connor's going to do is show us our world. We grew up in a world thinking if we're educated, we're smart, we know everything. Who can tell us? We're saved. Every serious person in the story thinks that they're saved. They don't have anything to worry about. And something happens in the story to throw it away. Exactly what happens in um, Flower and Judas. So one of the most important things to keep in mind while we're reading these is how the writers are so faithful in showing the world as it is, in naturalistic terms. A garden, a milk parlor, hogs, um, a misfit with a gun, right? A field, sweeping, wherever, going to a doctor's office. She takes very ordinary realities and by means of her vision shows us that something else is going on that is important for us to see. Um, she's dealing with largely middle-class people and lower-class people and um, all of them to a person um, um, see themselves in terms of respectability. It's a largely Protestant world. If they're respectable, they're saved. And what are the signs of respectability? This is so important because it's us. It is us. Um, we've made it. We've got a large house. It's comfortable. It's secure. We've got insurance, um, health insurance, medical insurance. We've made it. So the tendency in a Protestant world is to believe that those are signs of being saved. If you're respectable and decent, every care, Miss, Mrs. May is the same, Mrs. Tersman, the grandmother, they all tend to look down on people who have not made it. So the Negroes, um, the trash, the white trash in Turpin, they're all people who are, in her mind, not saved because they've not made it. They don't have wealth. They don't have a comfortable house. Sorry? Yeah, they're not clean. Mm -hmm. Cleanliness. Hmm? Sorry. Cleanliness and industry. It's like work and cleanliness are the two major virtues. Yeah. 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 Yes. And let me slip this in because you've heard me say this. How much of our Catholic identity has been colored by those things? How much has the modern Catholic been infected by? 
Protestant views of the world. Um, it's going to be it, it's, it's going to be one of the serious concerns in um, um, Greenleaf between the differences between May and Mrs. May and her family and um, the Greenleaf. Sorry, Karen, go ahead. Godliness, right, right. I think most of us heard that, and I think in some ways we live it without thinking too much about it. The cleaner our house is, the more evident we have of how good we are. And, and Chesterton said, "No, cleanliness is next to nothing." <laughs> I, do, I, I don't remember that, but it's like him. He, he yeah. And he also said, in, in, in a contrasting spirit here, if something's worth doing, it's worth doing badly. Can you imagine a Protestant saying that? And by the way, here, I'll come to it. Sorry. So, um, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, um, you know, even if you put, you know, in our modern society that God, we're not involved with God, you know, those, um, those things that show that you have more money or more wealth, are the ones that are accepted versus the people who didn't make it. So I know that we're talking about salvation, but in our mother world, it's not really salvation. It's just what you have now. Yeah. 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 But what you have now is measured against this ideal that you have everything. You've got servants. You've got a house. You don't have to do anything. You can spend your life on vacations. I mean, you've made it. It's, it's the economical part. You know, the, yeah. the, the uh, money yeah. part. Go ahead. Ricky, yeah. You can't speak unless you come again. <laughs> come on, I want to hear this. Go ahead. No, no, I'm glad you're. I'm glad you're. Come on. So you mentioned in the Protestant world, uh, the the attitude is that you know we have all the we're saved. As far as Catholics, we say we're saved, we're being saved, and we hope to be saved. So is that attitude that we should be living like we're not quite safe yet, but we, you know, so we don't have everything yet. I mean, whatever we have is not, is not, is not what we want. It's not what's going to save us. Right. Right. Yeah. Keep in mind that I just I'm I'm trying to delay here to get to these stories, but keep in mind the differences between Mrs. May and the Greenleaves. And I'm going to make this connection right now. Mrs. May wants to do everything she can to destroy that bull. She doesn't want that bull infecting her cows. Um, the Greenleafs are Catholic. I, I, let me wait till we get there if that's not obvious, but they're Catholic. Um, the Protestant believes by doctrine that um, people are predestined to salvation. It's already determined and, and nobody can do anything to, to change it. If, um, if God is predestined, this is Calvin, strict Calvin. If somebody's predestined dam or damnation, there's nothing he can do about it. Before he even makes a choice in his life, he's damned. And if he's um, saved, it's believed that God's will is, what's the word? Irreversible, fixed. If somebody's saved, there's nothing he can do that's bad that will alter his destiny. So the Calvinist and Lutheran believe that man does not have free will. Um, Calvin believes strongly in predestination. So what's going on in this story largely involves people who live according to those beliefs. It's a dark view. Um, they live with a sense of this heavy black-white 
way of looking at the world is black and white, you're damned or saved. Remember, we, we first encountered this in Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter. You, you can't forget that because of the attitude of those, particularly the women were, you know, and the, even, even the men who were mostly um, clerks, you know, ministers, all had that view. They didn't look to philosophy. Scripture decided everything. Everything was done. If you follow the rules of the society, it was evidence that you were saved. If you objected to it the way Anne Hutchinson did, you were thrown out. Remember, and the irony is she was living according to her belief in the Holy Spirit. That was higher than the social political rules of the community. She was trying to live according to the Holy Spirit and they threw her out. Because evidence of salvation was conformity to those rules. Most of the characters in O'Connor's works share those views. Just, it's good to be aware of them. Um, Mrs. May is more than a little controlling. We'll get to this when we look at the story. Keep in mind her resemblance to Ahab. Ahab had to control everything. He wanted to take vengeance on everything. Everything about May's attitude is she wants to take vengeance on everybody because she's accomplished all these things and nobody's giving her credit for what she's done. She doesn't like her children. They don't like her. She hates the green leaf. She wants to get rid of them. She wants to kill the bull. And the bull, if it wasn't obvious, is an image of Christ. That will become clear as we go through the story. Remember in the opening passage when the bull is um, eating the foliage, he, he eats them and strangely a garland appears around his neck. It's very much like Christ at the end. And it's almost, it's, and it's like the, the um, Zeus Europa myth in which Europa um, became enchanted with the bull and so enchanted that she put garlands around him and got on his back and he took her away. So she's dealing with a, the Catholic belief, but she's also dealing with ancient pagan myths, the myth of Zeus and the bull. Um, keep in mind the resemblance between Mrs. May and Ahab. Um, I'm going to stretch something here. It's really, Faulkner gave us a story, That Evening Sun, in which he made clear the effects of slavery. That um, the, the effects of slavery could only be enabling, because we saw the effects of the parents on the children. They, they blackmail, they cajole, they manipulate, they tease, they whine, they complain. Those are the things that are the result of slavery. It just ruined a class, both of them, whites and black. Um, Mrs. May prides herself on her self-reliance. So let me just ask this question flat out here to get this out. Because her two sons are spoiled badly. They hate their mother. Um, they fight. The Greenleaf sons are good. They went into the service. They serve. They built that milk pasture. And they don't fight. So how does self, this is a, just going to go to a point, we'll pick it up when we go to the story, but any thoughts on this? How does a spirit of self-reliance conduce to or contribute to, help lead to enabling? She's a very self-reliant woman. Can anybody want to take a stab at that before we get to the story? 
Can you repeat the question, Bob? Mrs. May, who's we're going to end with Greenleaf. I want to. I'm going to go th briefly through the. Th th um, I hope the door is open. Oh, it is. He's got it. Good. Hi, Chuck. Good to see you. Um, I think there's a meal waiting in her, but if there isn't, Chuck, help yourself. There's lots of amazing food there. The question I'm asking, because she prides herself in being self-reliant, that that is a real... She says, and everybody says, everybody, it's just like Laura, everybody says of her. They say she's a remarkable woman. She took a farm a depraved beat-down farm and says she made of it a success. She says everything she's done she owes to herself. She doesn't need God. She calls herself a Christian. This is amazing. She calls herself a Christian but doesn't believe in God. <laughs> so she's Protestant. She's going through all the motions of being a Christian but she does not... The, Mrs., uh, Mrs. Greenleaf throws herself down in those graves and says Stab me in the heart. Stab me in the heart. She says, help Christ, Christ, save me. She believes she's a sinner. Mrs. May believes she's not a sinner. She's perfect. She owes nobody anything. She's self-reliant. She made her life on her own. So the question that I'm asking, because she's, she's got these two sons who are not a... Worthless. What? Worthless. 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 Despicable. I'm going to get hard again. That that has become a term of mine for men in these stories we're reading. Despicable. And the and the um, Greenleaf boys are really good men, good young men. So I'm just the story invites that question. So I'm just asking it before we get. I'm trying to lay out some sort of general things because in every one of the stories we're dealing with a woman whose whose defining quality is pride. All of them are proud women. And what happens in their lives is blinding. I mean, it, it leads to some painful, painful end. So I'm just asking this question to sort of general, some general, I'm making some general observations about the stories before we look at them. Anybody want to make a stab at that? Take us to the heart? <laughs> well, I think that uh, uh, Mrs. May's attitude about her dairy bird is similar to her attitude about her two sons. She doesn't want the she doesn't want the herd to be contaminated by the bull from outside. Yes. Uh, yeah. But she doesn't want her sons to mix with these neighbors next door either. Yeah. Uh, and one when one son uh, uh, sort of in, in provoking her, he says, "When you're dead, I'm going to go marry." Uh, uh, Mrs. May, one, one of their daughters, or something like that. Right. And, and she's shocked by that. She and take over your property. Yeah. And she promptly goes out and makes changes her will to make an entail. It's exactly what we've um, experienced in Pride and Prejudice. She's going to entail it so that um, none of the wives can inherit. <laughs> so we have to include spitefulness in that. If, to, but, but my question, anybody? Go ahead. Yeah. Enabling her sons, she's so proud that I can do everything and I don't need any help. Well, so then she never involves the sons in teaching them how to run the farm or asking them for their help. So she's not going to, that's why her relationship with them is so strained because it's like, well, I'm busy being self sufficient. I don't yes. have time for you. Yes, to yes, for yes. You or yes, yes. That is, she doesn't teach her sons how to serve. He does not. 
And clearly, the Greenleaf boys have learned that. Everything they do, they went into the service, they served, they were wounded, they construct that milk house on their own. Um, you know, they're more normal. I mean, they're just ordinary boys. They don't fight. Um, so I want everybody to give some thought to that, self-reliant, because we, we talked about it in, in uh, That Evening Sun with slavery. But it doesn't have to be confined. It can be, a, if a government does everything for a person, what's going to happen to that person? Or a class, or a race? If a family does that with its children, if its parents do, um, so anyway, just some general concerns here that, that um, generally she's dealing with appearances and reality. Her stories are faithful to reality it is, but she's always showing there's something more going on that's important for us to see. And it's interesting that every one of her stories go to, goes to a dogma of the Catholic faith. All of her, all of her stories show that men have free, man has free will. He has choices. Ricky, to go to your point, he has free will. So a Catholic um, knows that he can damn himself at the very end. He can do all this stuff, but he can never presume on God. He prays for help, he hopes for help, he asks for help, because he acknowledges his sin. If a Catholic says, I'm not a sinner, <laughs> why be a Catholic? I mean, you know, Christ said, I came for the sick. God. So um, a Catholic, fundamental difference. So every one of her stories, even though it's largely dealing with the South and a biblical belt, a Bible belt, Protestant world, a culture in which people do not believe in free will and have a dark view of things, she always brings those characters to a point of choice. Something happens and they'll either, an, an, an opening is given to change, a, a grace is offered. The question is, what will they do with it? So fundamental is this um, dealing with appearances and reality, and more importantly, from a Christian perspective, good and evil, um, evil and grace. The reason her works are called grotesque comedy is because they're all about that instant when grace is given to a person who doesn't want it, who thinks he's saved or doesn't need it, and in our world, it's most of us who, who've grown up believing if you're economically sound, you've, you've made it. You're okay. The proof of that is your life. You've got a house, you've got insurance, you're comfortable. You don't need God. So in her stories, we keep dealing with people who for one reason or another um, are brought to a point where their whole way of looking at the world is shattered Grace is offered, and there's a grotesque. It's twisted. My image of it, if, if, you, if you take your mind back to the medieval cathedrals, is the gargoyles. If you've ever been to our house, you know that there are gargoyles. Every, if, if guests come to our home, they look. In fact, we had, a, we had a woman whom we love, a family whom we love. I should turn this off right now. She came to our house, and she shook her finger at me and said, Bob, <laughs> or Dr. Alexander, I can't remember what it was. Because um, one of the gargoyles was an image of, of a devilish sort of. If you remember the, the um, medieval cathedrals, there are gargoyles. The gargoyles are there to chase evil spirits off. They're, they're, they're figures imaging the grotesque conflict, that instant when evil and good meet. 
Because, I mean, think about, I think I've talked about this before. Imagine all of us trying to go around in the world looking like we're, we've made it. We're cool, we're calm, we're collected, unruffled, things don't bother us. But inside, if we've undergone, a, you know, inwardly a shattering experience, all that calm exterior is going to go. It, it produces a moment of a grotesque. Look at Christ. I mean, the most, the most beautiful image ever to, ever to present itself in history is Christ on the cross. It's, it should be the most beautiful image for us. I remember, I, I think I brought that image of the, of the, uh, of the uh, Christ, in, or I mean, uh, Mary and Joseph at the end, the incarnation. I, I think I showed it to you. And Mary and Joseph are exhausted. Didn't I? I showed it to you guys. Yeah, ex they're just exhausted. I thought it's the most perfect picture um, for Christmas. Yeah, the, or the birth um, that I've ever seen. Because it, it, it had to be like that. They had to be exhausted. Mary carrying a child. So most of these artists present the world as it appears. But that means when there's a moment of spiritual conflict, when good and evil meet, it produces this grotesque. It's an image of an inward spiritual struggle. It should not be a cause of embarrassment or shame. It should be a cause for gratitude, that grace is entering that period. That's what O'Connor's trying to bring us to, to help feel the glory of those kind of moments, when grace meet, encounters evil. Okay. So behind her views, I'm sorry, behind her writing, no matter what's going on, is constantly a secular world or a Protestant world being lived out on the part of characters set against a Catholic view of things. That some, grace, is, grace is always there. Whether people accept it or not, another thing. Let me stop it so we can look at the stories. Any, any questions on the sort of broad overall? Keep in mind the connection I made between Mrs. May and Ahab, trying to dominate nature. The Protestant looks at nature as bad. They want to dominate, control it for their good. That's a sign of their success, to, to dominate. The Catholic should not. The Catholic's position should be humbler. He should, he's steward. He's been asked, he's been given dominion, but in humility. He's a steward. He's taking God's gifts and trying to harvest them. So there are two very, very different views on harvesting fields, nature. Okay. So let me stop with those. Any comments or additions or Supposed to read the heart of the park for tonight. Mm -hmm. Okay. What you said about nature—it just struck me. He had to look at the animals every day, and he hated them. He just hated them. Relate that to what we're doing. So make the connection. Well, just as Ahab hates the white whale, mm. and um, Mrs. May hates this bull because it represents well the green leaves and just anything that's out of control. Nature, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, Enoch, Enoch? <laughs> Enoch? Enoch, yeah. I don't know how to pronounce it. 
um, has to go to the zoo every day. It's like a religious ritual, right? And has to just hate the animals. Look at them. And in her, in her writing, she describes them through his eyes as kind of evil and sinister. Like they're looking at each other with such hate. I think she even uses the, doesn't she use evil eye for one of them, giving a casting at Enoch, I can't. Yeah, the wolf's eyes or something like that. The that owl with the one eye, I don't, I don't, go ahead. The owl too, right. Okay, any other, before we go to the book, the stories themselves. Nobody, nobody should ever be ashamed of a Catholic faith. Ever. Question is, can we defend it? Live it? Truly live it? Okay, let's go. Go ahead. You were saying about Mary and how she probably didn't know Mm -hmm. that, but she knew, she had to have known that she was carrying the Savior. She knew the law. She knew what the prophets, you know, taught. She knew. She had to have known something. I hope I didn't. When Gabriel comes to her and asks, says, you're going to bear, and I think there are some people who actually believe she knew everything that I, I, I don't, but um, she, 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 she learned then that she was going to carry a Savior, and we learn because when she takes Jesus to the presentation and, you know, that, that suddenly things are Things are happening to the Jewish people that are strange. Even though they had prophecies, they, they couldn't match them up. Um, I, I, don't, I, I find it hard to believe that Mary knew everything there. I, I think it partly takes away from her yes, because the point of her yes, at, at least according to the church's tradition, is that it's an example of the most extraordinary faith because um, it affirmed the maternity of a woman, the place of a woman that she could bring life in. A man can't. Only a woman can. So the, the glory of a woman is extraordinary. She's, she's the only one of the two of us who can bring life into the world, in the body. So it's an affirmation of the body. Gnostics won't hold this. Modern Gnostic psychologists will live in their heads. A Catholic cannot, cannot. Our glory is in our body. And if it wasn't clear before Christ came, it had to be clear afterwards because he took our body on. So when she said yes, she said it without having a clue what it would involve, that she would, this would be God, she would learn more and more about it. I mean, so she says to him in the temple, you know, when he's 13, and they, she comes back and she says, why have you done this to us? You know, it's, an, it's a gentle scolding. It's, she, and the, the, I love the passage afterwards because they went home and he obeyed them. He's the, he's, he's, the God who created his mother and he's obeying her. So anyway, I think the, the reason she's given the place that she is is the sort of center image of everything that's mystical, intuitive, and feminine in the church is because she gave that yes without knowing yeah, what she would be facing. Um, and I, and I'm, I pointed that out, as, I mean, it was my effort to try to make clear one of the characteristics of womanhood, you know, that's at risk today. Um, she had no concern for power, no concern for image, no concern for wealth, no concern for pleasure. Remember, those are the four goods that Thomas says, 
most people want and most men define their lives by and women today because they've entered that world those are the defining qualities of women it's not true for Mary um, and I'm just going to say this for a moment I want to get in because I don't want I don't want this to be about my feelings but my own personal belief is this has to be one of the hardest centuries for women ever it's not because of a plight of you know being politically discriminated against it's because of the temptations they face abortion I mean, murder suicide more and more women killing you know I mean everything that's going on with women today points to a I mean it's a predicament I, I'm not aware of anything like this in history so I just think it's a really hard age for women for a young girl to grow up in this age to me is what it asks of her is I mean it's just it, I, my feelings go out that's how strongly I feel about it um, but let's go to the stories I'm gonna go quickly over the first two so I'm um, not gonna spend any time on them but I want to try to get to a central point in heart of the park remember because this what's the setting of each story because remember settings speak like stones the setting heart of the park a zoo hold on but it's presented with a gate with two trees so what is the zoo an image of and hold on Enoch who's Enoch in the Bible we've gone through this I'm gonna surprise you guys one day and give you guys a quiz Who's Enoch? The founder of the first city. And remember, that's crucial because in the creation of the first city, in the founding of the first city, man attempts to live self-sufficiently without God. He's going to create his own world. So it's an expression of how extraordinarily gifted man is. Nothing like it in creation. And it's also an expression of his hubris. The awful things that man does. The city is an image of horrible paradoxes it's where everything bad goes on so what do we see in the setting it's two trees and um, Enoch is a central figure and he's living with this sense of a mystery so the action has to do with this the garden that's the right we're at a park we're at a park and there are animals so it's an image of um, a fabricated ugly imitation of Eden that's our setting and Enoch lives with a sense of a mystery and he has to share it with somebody so it's it's at the heart of the park so however we're to conceive of this story what O'Connor is showing us is that every single one of us every one of us in this room every human being that's ever been created lives with some collective sense of an Eden we once had and we want to go back to why is suburbia important because it's people's efforts to go back and recover the garden I've already gone over this countless times and what happens when people start going to suburbia to get away from the city because the city's too full of evil evil starts showing up the wealthy people are the most drugs adultery murder is everybody with me I, I want to be careful I, I'm going fast because I want to I want to get to Greenleaf and Revelation but is everybody okay 
So what she's doing is giving us a mythic sense of the importance of Eden, that it, lives, it exists in our memory. Even if we're not aware of it, we long to recover. Why else have a good house? Why else suburbia? Why have a garden? Why, why do we give such importance to those things? To plant our own, in the city, to plant our own food, our fruits, our vegetables. There's this longing to recover something we all had. And there's this mystery, and Enoch has to share it. It's in his blood. He can't deny it. And I want to make this short, and I know it's going to be an awful... I'm going to be ruthless with these, sorry. He has to share it, and so he, he um, picks up this stranger. By the way, this story that makes up Heart of the Park is taken from one of her novels called um, Wise Blood. So what... Um, what um, um, Hazel... Weaver is talking about when he goes to Enoch and says, I want the address to those, that couple. He wants it because in the novel, Wise Blood, he meets this Christian couple or cu couple who's presenting these Christian things and, they, and, he's, and he's troubled by them and wants to get back to this couple. You don't have to know that, but what's, what we've got here is part of her novel. He, Enoch has to share it with somebody and Hazel Weaver comes along and he takes them to this museum um, to the heart of the park. What does he discover there that's so shocking, that holds Weaver's attention? Um, and you know at the time the woman who's got these sharp teeth and who drops her bathing suit because she knows these men are staring at her. She follows them into the museum and she looks into the glass um, container, the whatever that thing is called, and sees a reflection of herself. In fact, they all see reflections of themselves. What's the mystery at the center of this park? Because that's the way we're left in the story, right? And, and here, just to, to, you know, to, to give it the power that it needs, Enoch... Enoch's blood is boiling over. He feels like, and I know, I, I'm assuming all of us have that feeling. We have feelings like something strange is going to happen or we're unnerved and we can't know why, that our feelings just sort of, it's like somebody pulled a rug out and all the things that, all the things that we depend on, it's like they're illusions and we feel shaken for a moment. Enoch is, is like that and he takes um, Hazel to the, to this, it's that container called, what's it, this glass container. And um, all of the people looking into it are suddenly caught. And Enoch is so, um, so taken by it um, that he goes outside um, and Hazel is so upset when um, Enoch tries to get him that he throws a stone at him and the last passage we have of him is his blood coming out of his head and it reads this way he rolled over and lay stretched out on the ground with an exalted look on its face as if sharing this mystery with somebody revealed its inner meaning he thought he was floating a long way off he saw a blue figure spring and pick up a rock it's um, Hazel throwing a rock at him when he opened his eyes, Weaver was gone. He put his fingers to his forehead. Blood comes out. A drop of blood on the ground, and as he looked at it, he thought it, it widened like a little spring. 
It's like a health-giving image springs. He sat straight up, frozen skinned, and put his finger in it, and very faintly he could hear his blood beating, his secret blood at the center of the city. So at the center of the city is this longing for a heart. It's in memory. I mean, sorry, longing for Eden, a lost world. Um, what is the mystery at the center of this at the center of this story, at the center of the park. Go ahead. Oh, I don't know if I should. Go, go. No, you're going to ask more questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the mummy of this uh, shrunken person. Um, which... <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. It's like... He's making such a mystery of it. I don't, I don't even know if he understood it was just a piece of, you know, museum thing, you know. Um, but we know that it once, once, um, a full-formed, tall figure, that the Arabs are shrunk. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, symbolically, which, I mean, she's so heavy with symbolic images, I mean, it is a sort of mummified, shrunken figure. What is it symbolic of? What's the mystery here? Center, center of the city. In a sense, it defines the city. How far, how far removed we are from Eden. Mm -hmm. From our own humanity. It reminded me of Petrified Man, too. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the mystery is what? Can you articulate it? I mean, all, all, all that you're, the two of you are saying is right on. I mean, he's fascinated and repelled at the same time. To think that something that was created to be good and Noble. healthy and alive yes. and flourishing is now lifeless and shrunken and dried out and in a display case for yes. people to look at. Yeah. So it represents modern man, I suppose. Yeah. It's an image of what man can do to himself and how far we've gone from Eden to this. And we have to take that seriously. It's a shrunken figure. This was a normal, regular size, normal sized human being. So, and it's wonderful because she, she invested with all this meaning. What's the mystery that he's going to? What has he got to show? What he's going to show is exactly what you said, that, that man who was given these extraordinary gifts by a creator in the modern city has shrunken himself, reduced himself to this. It's a grotesque image. Any comments or, I want to go, sorry I'm rushing, but I really, any comments on this or? Yes, you were, go. I have a question. You were saying how um, in, in general um, a situation of grace is presented and it's twisted. I understand the meaning you're saying, but I don't understand how the grace is... is can you maybe flush that in this... Well, in this, I mean, at least in this story, I mean, you can see it when... So, these are normal human beings. They've all come to this glass case to see this museum artifact, this thing. It's, a, it's an image of how, what man can do to himself, how, how he shrinks himself, how he dehumanizes himself. Look at the faces of all of them in that moment. I mean, they're all grotesque. They're, they don't have the calm or 
they're, they're so taken by this image. And, it, and it's repeated in the last image when he puts a finger in his head. You know, they're, they're grotesque images. They're not, so they're not bourgeois. They're not images of man in control of himself or a, a moment of grace is taking place. What will its effect be on all these figures, on Hazel and the woman and her boys? I'm supposing that nothing will affect her, but we're left wondering. But it's a grotesque moment. They are, um, they're, un they're, over they're undone by this image. We'll see it in story after story. Mary, did you have something? No. Mary, did you? No. I like how um, Enoch knows there's a mystery to this mosaicum <laughs> or whatever. You know how he pronounces yeah, it? Right. He doesn't even know the word. Right. And yet he visits every day. This is how we're supposed to approach mystery. It's kind of dwell with it and stay until it reveals itself little by little, right? And there's always more to be revealed. But I just admired his persistence in attending to the mystery. Yeah, it's a good way Whereas to put it. I think that Hazel got it immediately. Do you? Immediately yeah. Immediately, yeah. ran off in, you know, yeah. in horror and violence. But Enoch wasn't sure and had to see it every day, every day, and then had to witness someone else seeing it in order to really come to a fuller. Yeah, and the, you know, just on, an interesting note on that to pick it up. It, it takes seriously what Alexis is saying. Put it in terms of the Catholic experience of the Mass. The Mass is a ritual. The Protestant doesn't know that. Protestants don't have those rituals. You go to a Protestant meeting and some, you know, the minister gives a sermon. Protestants, sorry, Catholics um, enter into a ritual with steps all the time. So, I mean, to pick up what you're saying, uh, to, to give it a positive twist the way Alexis is doing right now, you can say there's something positive to what Enoch is doing. It's like, it's as if he's trying to recover something that's been lost to him. Catholic has a hold of it. Catholic life is full of rituals to the Eucharist, you know. And this mystery unfolded. It's interesting, in light of what you're saying, that it has to be shared, and it won't have its full meaning without being shared. And I'm assuming, because our identity is, it's not, in the, in the Protestant world, is the self is exalted above everybody else. Your private vision defines you. The private self. Your experience of God. A private revelation should guide you. The Catholic believes that God is Trinitarian, so our nature is communal. We belong with each other. We were not meant to be alone or isolated. So there's a lot going on with Enoch that has a positive twist to it, even though it seems primitive and far removed, but in a sense it's affirming a Catholic view, the importance of rituals, of building up, of attending to things, coming back to them, sharing it with somebody. I think if, we'd, if we were in a marriage and went to um, Mass, and suddenly our beloved, a husband and wife, was not there, we would miss that person greatly. I mean, usually when we feel a joy, doesn't it have to be shared? I don't think any of us want to keep a joy to her. The very nature of a joy is meant to burst out. Um, 
A good man is hard to find. I'm gonna, once again, I'm going to rush through this. I may have to pick up one of these stories when we come back to Violent Buried Away. I'm going to go through this quickly and get to the end again, because there's a mystery here. You know the story. The grandmother is manipulative. I remember when Suzanne was, um, when she first graduated, she was working with seniors, um, senior citizens, and it was a really meaningful job. It was sad to hear the stories that um, she would recall to me when she got home, when she had to visit seniors in their homes and see the awful lives that seniors who are left alone live. It's just a sad, sad story. Um, but one, one of the things I remember had a sort of comic twist to us when she came home. She said, the, the people you most want to watch out for are little old ladies who wear white gloves when they're driving automobiles. <laughs> but, but this image of this proper old lady with white gloves took me. She said, watch out for them. If you watch out for anybody, watch out for little old ladies with white gloves. The grandmother here is like that, wouldn't you say? I mean, she's so proper, she's so prim, and everybody would admire how proper and prim, and she, she thinks she's so good. But she's manipulated, and she's manipulated the family into going on this ride and, and to see this thing that doesn't exist. I don't want to go through it all, I want to get to the end. They visit a, um, a stop, and then they go on, but the cat that she snuck inside the car with her jumps out, and Bailey, the son who's driving, and it causes Bailey to have an accident, they go off the road. So they're in a ditch and they're there, unable to do anything. The mother, I think, has a broken shoulder, if I remember, and she's hurt. She has the baby in her arm, her baby's okay. The other kids are gleeful. I mean, it's like the kids in Greenleaf. I mean, they're jumping up and down because they had an adventure. Little do they know. So they're gleeful. Mother's got a broken shoulder, and suddenly this car drives up, and we know from earlier in the story about this misfit, um, this sort of pathological sociopath, this man who, um, who escaped with his fellows, and they happen to be in the car, and they see the wreck, and they go down. And I don't want to go through it because I really want to get to the other story. He tells his henchman, one of them, he says, why don't you take the, the father and son off in the wood for a minute? And the grandmother at that point s starts saying, because I think she gets a little bit nervous, you're a good man. You're a good man. Um, she's doing everything she can to um, make him feel at home in the world that defines her world. Respectability, niceness, getting along, tolerant, because she thinks she's all those things. So, and she's telling him, you don't have to do these. She doesn't quite say that yet, but the henchman takes the father and son, and then suddenly we hear a gunshot, and the man comes back, and the grandmother begins to get worried. She continues to talk with a uh, misfit, except now there's a sense of urgency in the things that she's saying. And at another point, the, he'll say to the other henchman, why don't you take the mother and the girls in there and he takes them in and we hear another gunshot. So, in, in once again, in what seems to be an ordinary event, a car drives off the road. And, and remember, this is a deserted place. It's off the beaten way. So, um, one of the stories takes place in a doctor's office. It's where people get healed, ironically. They're not getting healed. The other takes place in a milk farm. It should be nurturing. That's the last thing you can say about Mrs. May. 
This is um, an out-of-the-way place. It's not where anything ordinary goes on. Is that clear? So the setting, once again, is appropriate. Be, be, is everybody clear on that? Settings always speak. Metaphorically, they tell us the story. This is out of the way. It's where strange things happen. This is not the grandmother's world because her world is proper, decorous, nice. Um, um, the mother begins to make noise and the misfit says, um, this is on page 10, lady, he said, would you and that little girl like to step off yonder? He's always so uh, polite, the misfit. Would you like to step off yonder with Bobby Lee and hear him and join your husband? They go off and a moment later, um, we hear a gunshot again and we know that the misfit and his henchmen have killed the family. The only one left now is the grandmother. Um, she says, bottom of 10, she finds herself because she knows that what was supposed to be this e-outing that meant everything to her, enough for her to manipulate her family. She's put herself here. I, I don't think that kind of guilt is coming, but she's shaken because she knows right now the kids are being killed. Finally, she found herself saying, Jesus, Jesus, meaning Jesus will help you. But the way she was saying it sounded as if he might, he, she might be cursing. Yes, and the misfix said as if he agreed, Jesus showed everything, showed everything off balance. It was the same case with him as with me, except he hadn't committed any crime and they could prove it. Because remember, they accused Christ of all these crimes that he didn't commit and crucified him. So the misfit had at least that identity. He can't remember a crime, but he doesn't have any sense that he's done something wrong and he's been convicted. And moreover, when he went up to the, you know, when he was forced to go to the psychologist to, who could diagnose him, the psychologist said, you killed your own daddy. And he knows that's a lie. So that's a modern therapy being imposed on him, and he knows it's a lie. You all know that reference to that, right? It's Freud saying all of us have this desire to sleep with our mothers and kill our fathers. So the whole approach of this psychologist who's trying to help straighten out the misfit is to let him know he's got this instinct of wanting to kill his dad. And he's nothing but good to say about his father. Um, on page 11, does it seem right to you, lady, that one is punished a heap and another ain't punished at all? That's straight out of Boethius. Why do the good suffer and the evil not get punished? The misfit is aware here. This is so, he's a misfit. He's aware that there's something wrong in the world. We could go back to the city again in, you know, part of the city. We could go back there. There's something wrong in the world. And nobody's seen it. He's aware of it. Jesus was the only one that ever raised the dead, the misfit continued, and he shouldn't have done it. He showed everything, he shown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. And if he didn't, then nothing for you to do but enjoy the few. That's Calvin. If Christ was God, there's nothing you can do. If he's not, Dostoevsky said it. If there's no God, you can do anything. And if Calvin's right and there's all evil, then there's nothing to do but take pleasure in committing evil. Is everybody following? I mean, he's, he's touching on absurdities in the world that generally people don't want to live. 
certainly the grand, because the grandmother lives in this nice conventional sweet house. Maybe he didn't raise the dead, the old lady mumbled, not knowing what she was saying and feeling so dizzy that she sank down in the ditch with her legs twisted under her. Has everybody seen the irony? She's a Christian. She believes in Christ. This is a moment of panic. It's like her faith is disappearing. The misfit said, I wish I'd been there, he said, hitting the ground. It ain't right. I wasn't there because if I'd been there, I would have known. Listen, lady, he said, if I'd been there, I would have known and I wouldn't be like I am now. That's modern skepticism. I wasn't there. I have every reason for doubting it. I have, in fact, I have no reason for believing it because I wasn't there. So the only proof is actual immediate experiences. So everybody who believes in Christ now um, is an idiot because he should be skeptical. We weren't there. She saw the man's face twisted close to her own as if he were going to cry and she murmured, because they're up against, I mean, they're right close to each other now. And then she says to him, after this long exchange about Christ and how he threw everything off in the world, why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children, she reached in. Why, you're one of my own, one of my own children. She reached out and touched him on the shoulder. The misfit sprang back as if a snake had bitten him and shot her three times through the chest. He tells the henchmen to do their job and get rid of the bodies. And Bobby Lee says in the very end, she was a talker, wasn't she? Sliding down the ditch with a yodel. She would have been a good woman, the misfit said, if she'd been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. Some fun, Bobby said. Shut up, Bobby Lee. Now notice that. Bobby Lee is agreeing that the world is meaningless, that it's a pleasure to kill her. Could have killed her every day. That would have been fun. The misfit is looked at as a sociopath who wants to do nothing but kill. But now he has this encounter with the grandmother when she says, why, you're one of man, you're one of my own. It so throws him off that in that instant his response is to kill her. When Bobby Lee says, um, would have been fun killing her you know, all day long, he says, shut up, Bobby Lee, the misfit said, it ain't, it's no real pleasure in life. So here, to go to, let's just see his question again. What is this, what's going on? How are we to understand this moment? What happens between the grandmother and the misfit? And how is it a, mo how is it a moment of grotesque comedy? How do we understand, how do we, what do we say about the grandmother? She's lived this proper life and then she says to the misfit, remember she would have hated this figure, her whole life has been, a, against this, and she looks at him and says, why, you're one of my own. He's so offended by it, he shoots her, and then when Bobby Lee says it would have been great fun to kill her all day long, he says, shut up, there's no pleasure in life, when he said a few minutes earlier, the only pleasure is doing bad things. So what happens in this encounter between the grandmother and the misfit? How do we understand? How is this a moment of grace? about uh, Jesus was the only one that raised the dead. 
he thrown everything off balance. If he did what he said, then it's nothing for you to do but throw away everything and follow him. He's paraphrasing St. Paul. And Christ, give up everything and... First Corinthians. Yeah. Well, remember the lawyer who said what I do, and he says, give everything, and the man dropped his head and walked away. Yes. Give up everything. Anyway, sorry, Mike, go ahead. No, but, but uh, you know, what, what uh, I, I made a note that from 1 Corinthians 15, for if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is in vain. He understands that. Yeah. yeah although he doesn't get that he doesn't quite believe that Christ was yeah. truly resurrected. Yeah. Because it doesn't change him. Mike, can you go anywhere with that? And um, apply it to his name, a misfit? Well, he's not the type of Christian that the grandmother is used to meeting. Well, he's, I'm not saying he's a Christian at all. Right. But he's, he's a misfit because he doesn't fit her mold. Um, or society's mold, either. Or yeah. Go ahead, Doc. Where you? My recollection was that he uh, um, I call myself the misfit, he said, because I can't make what all I've done wrong fit what all I've gone through in punishment. So it's his name for himself, the misfit. Can you flesh out his own comment there? What, what? He has trouble looking at, well, he doesn't remember what he did that was wrong that got him in trouble. Um, but it clearly got him in a lot of trouble. And he's not sure that the punishment fits the crime. Can you make any sense of that? Do you all remember from Dostoevsky, just, I mean, to bring in something that will help here. You remember in Dostoevsky, um, what Zosima's real quarrel, because remember, the brothers opened with that theological discussion of punishment and whether the law could ever be adequate to help correct a man. And the position was that the law, Zosima's position was, the law can never satisfactorily answer a, a crime. And that was because his belief was that until you could correct the interior of a person, and only God can do that, the law would be inadequate. So there would be, always be this incommensurability this disproportion between the law, punishment, actions and the punishments for them. That there's something wrong in the way people punish criminals. The socialists today take that all together away. They say you, you don't deserve any punishment because the, what's at fault is not you and your individual responsibility, but the system. If we, so they're turning criminals back out on the street. Is everybody clear? We've got two extremes there. Dealing with this question about a fault, a crime, and an appropriate consequence, a punishment. So he's he's a misfit because he can't um, square that, and it leaves us with a question, you know. That is, are are there some ways in which our own and the social the Marxists will believe that? Are there some ways in which our own system? Um, is um, producing people, criminals, cruelly because there's something wrong with the system. I don't want to go there because that's another... Pro but has everybody seen... There's something more going on here with this story. 
um, that there's something wrong with society and um, it's produced this misfit. I want to go to this moment. What happens in this moment? Does the grandmother learn anything? What are we to say when she says, why, you're one of my own? What is, what's going on with her? And, and why does the misfit shoot her then? And why does he say to Bobby, shut up, there's no pleasure in this at all? Because two minutes earlier he was saying, the only pleasure in life is doing wrong. What happens to both of them in this exchange? Yeah. It's almost like she offered him a little bit of love there and he can't. But then it did touch him because now he says there is no pleasure. Yeah. 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 Well, I saw the, I saw it a little different. I saw the grandmother as being manipulative, the entire story. And that at the end she knew she was gonna probably get killed too. So I thought I considered it she was manipulating him by saying, oh, you're my son. That's how I saw it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That isn't the way I just, I mean, I, I, see, I think, at least as I read it, she doesn't say it with that tone. That, um, I, at least I don't hear that. It seems to me that she comes to see something in that moment, and I think um, you're, that, you're, that something's happened to her, the terror, the fright, the loss of her children, the grandchildren. Um, something happens to her in that moment. And I think something happens to the misfit. So to go to your question, this, I mean, it, there's almost not a better example of grotesque comedy. Um, it is truly grotesque. She, I think she comes to a real, it's like um, in the heart of the park when Enoch you know, puts his finger in or goes to the center of the park. It's like he's touched this mystery that there's something wrong with man. The modern world denies it. The zoo is evidence of it. The zoo is evidence of this mythic collective memory you have that it's in all of us that we long to return to Eden. You know, but the city has screwed things up. And Christ has unscrewed it. But from the city's perspective, they're going to say he's the one who screwed things up. Leave us alone. If we're just left to do our business in the city, we'll produce good cities. The misfit is a reminder that something's wrong. So it, it seems to me here's another image of grotesque comedy, that it's a, literally a meeting point between grace and evil. That a grace is given to both the mother and the misfit. She's dead. We don't know. I mean, I think she saw something. The question is, what will the misfit do now? He says there's no real pleasure in it. What's he going to do from this point on? Are you all following? So once again, and she's leaving us out on a mystery. It involves a human choice, free will. The misfit has been determined in his life for a long time now. He's just done nothing but evil. Will this encounter change him? We can't say. But he's not the same when he says there's no pleasure in it. And he tells his henchmen to shut up. So she's going to these moments where people experience grace and it unsettles them. And I think, I think that's true for most of us. When we're unsettled and things 
when we think we've got everything settled and something happened and it's like the rug gets pulled out from under us, um, we're disturbed, we're upset, um, things aren't the way we want them, there's a question, um, can we find in that a moment of grace? If we're reading Boethius, remember, you know that, that whatever happened, God's allowing. So there's, remember, Boethius said, there's no, what did he say, no real, no bad fortune. There's no real bad fortune because whatever happens, God is working with it. So God is protecting our free will. We're not Protestants. We do not believe things are determined. Our salvation is not guaranteed. Not. We have free choice. We can lose it. Um, we're, we're offered hope. Faith, hope, and charity are the gifts from God. The church offers us sacraments. Those are sacramental. They're gifts from God. The world can't provide them. So there's a lot in our faith that, that makes this encounter between grace and evil real. When these moments happen, um, um, particularly that involve our suffering, how do we see them? How do we go through them? So every one of her stories is dealing with those moments, those grotesque moments, okay? I was going to do Revelation, Revelation and um, Greenleaf. I really wanted to focus on those because um, for, for, Revelation is one of her most amazing stories. I think it's her last one because it's the most hopeful. What she does at the end of Revelation is unlike anything she does at any other story. So I'm looking forward to doing it with you. And I want to do Greenleaf because I think Greenleaf is a paradigmatic. It's just an emblematic of everything that is at the center of her vision. Um, but the dinner saved all of us. So... <laughs> we'll, we'll save this for me. Um, I was planning to take a two-week break and I'd like to go through with that. So let's take a two-week break. When we come back, we'll take a night for the two stories. And then we'll start the violent buried away. So they're all Flannery O'Connor. So you can go ahead. We'll spend probably just a couple of weeks on the violent buried away. If you can read it all in advance, it would help because if you have it in you, it'll make it easier to go through it. But we'll do these two stories because they really, they're important stories because they deal with this whole issue of grace, which is so real for a Catholic in ways that's not true for a Protestant. We just don't see the world the same way. So I don't want to just pass over those lightly. I'd like to take time. So when we get back, no food, no food, bring wine. Oh, please, I'll bring wine, unless, unless, unless everybody's giving it up for Lent. Okay, good, good. Um, um, we'll do those two stories, and then the following week we'll do The Violent Bared Away. Which is the last one, I'm sorry? The Violent Bared Away? Sorry? It's, her, it's, a short, it's very short. It's a very short novel. It deals explicitly with, with the mystery of baptism. So she's going directly, directly to an issue of faith in her story. Of it in there. Like the, the heart of the parts of the chapter, so 